Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In 1831, a 25-year-old Frenchman, Alexis de Tocqueville, trained as a lawyer and preoccupied with democracy, came to the United States to study this new political scheme. Alexis de Tocqueville and his traveling companion, Gustave de Beaumont, arrived in Newport, Rhode Island, in an America then comprised of 23 states with 13 million people. Nine months later, they returned to France, and Tocqueville began his epic work entitled Democracy in America. At a time when slavery was an economic base in the South, and abolitionism was beginning to thrive in the North, America had three frontiers, geography, industry, and democracy. In this Chautauqua-style interview, recorded in July 1996, we visit with Alexis de Tocqueville through the person of Chautauqua scholar Dick Johnson and conclude with a conversation with Dick Johnson. Bonjour, Monsieur Vogel. Uh, bonjour. Uh, we're happy to have you here uh, through the wonderful use of uh, telephones and radio equipment. I'd like to know uh, what it was about democracy that intrigued you so, that, that caused you to, um, in some cases, flee your homeland, travel across the ocean, and look at us back in 1831. Ah, oui, monsieur. It's a complex answer. Uh, indeed, all through Europe, people were realizing that uh, the last 700 years of our history was a slow, inexorable move towards greater and greater equality. When you say our of... history, you mean the French history. Well, it is true of France, but also of Europe as well. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, a kind of democracy that was arising very slowly and then, of course, gained uh, much momentum in the revolution that occurred in my country 40 years ago. So there I do mean uh, the French history. But in addition to, to that realization, uh, many of us were looking at the United States as a kind of democracy that seemed to be uh, far in advance of what we saw occurring in France. Uh, finally, it had a very important personal meaning for me because I saw at a personal level that democracy was coming, it was our destiny, it was inevitable, and if we did not understand how best to make use of it, then we were in grave danger, and indeed in danger for our lives. There were five members of my own family who were killed by the guillotine in the revolution 40 years ago. And that was before, of course, you came to America. That's correct. In fact, it was before I was born in 1805. So did this instill the, uh, the fear in you? It would be wrong, I think, to call this a fear. I was uh, concerned that uh, democracy be used wisely. Uh, it's something that I say is inevitable, and yet the way in which we approach it, the way in which we make use of it, is still within our power to create either a democracy that works for our benefit or indeed one that can destroy us. The term democracy used wisely is something I'd like to come back to in our conversation, uh, but I would like to know what it was that you saw in America as you traveled through many of the states for your nine months, uh, nine months that you were here? Well, the first thing that struck me was the equality of conditions among people. It, it was 
incredible. Uh, on the street, people of all sorts would stop each other and shake hands and treat each other as if they were equals, dip their hats to uh, each other. I could not uh, understand this. And in homes where we went, when there were servants, they refused to be called servants. Uh, they would say, uh, we are help. And when dinner was served uh, and we sat down to eat, uh, we suddenly looked around and there they sat down next to us. Uh, so there was a, an astonishing kind of equality uh, spread throughout the country. Did you find this when you went into the South, into the slave states too? We found an interesting kind of equality. Um, Beaumont and I had had dinner in Boston with uh, John Quincy Adams, the former president of the United States, and, and Adams had uh, told us that in, in the South there is a greater equality among white people as a result of slavery. It makes white people more equal, knowing that there are slaves that will do the, the work of many people. When we use the term people and white people, uh, was there a clear distinction that you saw or even felt from your own experience between uh, white people and black people? A clear distinction? Uh, There's a visual distinction, and our Constitution at that time, uh, in terms of setting up the representatives in the, in the House of Representatives, only counted uh, black people as three-fifths of a person. So you're talking of equality among white people in the slave states. Yes, indeed. Uh, when I speak about equality and, and uh, democracy, when I tried to understand that in America, I was looking at the form of government that you had, which really uh, applied primarily to white men. And the, the distinction that you speak of uh, between white and black was very evident to us. Uh, in Philadelphia, for example, I asked a Quaker, is it true that the black people have the right to vote? And he said, oh, yes, it's true, but they wouldn't dare do it. Oh, oh why, I asked. Well, they know that they would be beaten if they did. So you see that uh, race created many problems in America, and perhaps we'll come back to this issue, because uh, uh, at some point I would like to suggest to you that the problem of race is probably the most dangerous problem for America. It's not a problem for democracy, exactly. It is a problem that America has created, and I think it is a problem that may destroy America, even though democracy may survive in another form. Well, maybe we could address that right now. Fine. Then I see that uh, when I came, I came to look at democracy and, and not to look at uh, the problems of race. But as I traveled through the South, when I was in the slave state of Maryland, and talking talking with people there, and then uh, at other points in the South, uh, in Tennessee, for example, I saw what an impact slavery made on uh, American society. Maybe and I saw that uh, the situation between whites and blacks was very different from that Maybe of could whites and Indians. Maybe you describe that impact for us. Excuse me? Maybe you could describe that impact that slavery made, as you saw well, it in the 1830s, 31 and 32. Yes, one can see this in stark contrast, uh, as I did, uh, traveling down the Ohio River. From my steamboat, I could look to my right and see the new state of Ohio, and on my left was the state of Kentucky. Ohio was more recent uh, in its establishment than Kentucky but already it had a larger population, 
and there was very busy activity, people moving all about and building buildings and creating communities and societies. But on my left, in the slave state, I saw nothing, uh, no kind of activity. Everything was quiet and placid. And I asked people about this. A, a lawyer from Cincinnati, Timothy Walker, explained to me that because Ohio was a state without slavery, that immigrants wanted to come there and they wanted to establish lives and seek opportunities. But in the slave states, that immigrants refused to go there because they would be competing with slave labor. Not only was it difficult for immigrants, but it also created a kind of, shall I say, laziness among the whites. Uh, when I was in uh, uh, Sandy Bridge, Tennessee, uh, I was at a, a small tavern where there was an enormous fire uh, in the middle of the room, and yet if you were five feet away from the fire, the wind coming through the log cabin, through these big cracks, uh, simply froze you to death. This was in the middle of winter. And it, it struck me with enormous curiosity why a man would not simply uh, find some mud and cover these cracks so that the wind wouldn't come in. And I began to realize, as I talked with the proprietor, that the whites there had become uh, in, incredibly lazy because they expected blacks, slaves, to do all of their labor for them. So I feel that slavery clearly is bad for the economy and also bad for the society. And there's no uh, question in my mind that as this equality that I've mentioned before continues to move through the world, and we already see in uh, many colonies of uh, Britain and France that slavery is ending, it will end in the United States as well. The problem then becomes, what will be the relationship between whites and blacks when slavery is ended? And, and what, what is your uh, expectation of that relationship? I raised this question with many Americans. Uh, you see that there's a, a great problem. It's not simply a question of ending slavery. There are three prejudices that these moderns will have to contend with. There is the prejudice of the white, the color, that has now become part of society, that claims that white is a better color than black, and people who are lighter-skinned are better than people who are darker-skinned. That will be a problem to deal with. Then there's the prejudice of the master, the people who have become accustomed to thinking that they have uh, some right uh, to, to uh, control the lives of others, and that will continue to be a problem once slavery is over, because people will not easily let go of that kind of power. And finally, there's the problem of race. You see, it really is, is three problems combined, where the whites, the Europeans, uh, have grown to believe, I think wrongly, that their race is far superior in every way to blacks. Uh, it's true that they have greater knowledge and uh, greater uh, creations of civilization, but in natural intelligence, all races are equal, and it will only be a matter of time before blacks achieve the same kind of equality of conditions that uh, whites have, if the whites will allow it. But these three prejudices, I think, are a very, very important so when I asked Americans, what do you think is going to happen, I constantly received the same answer. They expect that whites and blacks will be unable to live uh, among each other, and they expect a race war will occur, and one race will exterminate the other. And what was your reply uh, when people said that? Uh, was it mingle I completely or part? Was, was that the position that you presented? 
I came primarily as an observer to ask and to seek to understand, so I did not uh, seek to argue with them. Uh, later in my life, when I uh, had a correspondence with a good friend, Arthur Gobineau, who in the early 1850s wrote a, uh, a large book on the inequality of the races, where he charged that there was a permanent inequality of the races, and some were obligated to rule over others. I, I told him flatly that this was wrong and that this was against God's will and that uh, uh, no sane person could truly believe this. Mm -hmm. I'm worried that uh, in the 1850s that the trend seems to be moving towards a greater and greater claiming of permanent inequality. It's a sad time for us. Mm -hmm. I want to take a moment and say that you're listening to Radio Curious. My guest this week is Alexei de Tocqueville, who will be participating in the Ukiah Chautauqua beginning on July 24th. It will also be presented July 25th, July 26th, and July 27th, all to be broadcast here on Mendocino County Public Radio. I'm Barry Vogel. Alexei, when uh, you moved farther west in the United States, which at that time the frontier was uh, on the edge of Ohio and Michigan, you, you were particularly drawn to the frontier. Uh, tell us about that magnet, why it drew you. There is nothing in Europe like the frontier in America. Beaumont and I both had a great desire to see something that would would not remain long, forests that had never been touched by European settlers. And this was a great dream of ours to I imagine ourselves, no, to experience the reality of being in these wild, untamed forests surrounded by huge trees and to have a sense uh, of being the first settlers, if you would, uh, the first white men to have this kind of experience. So we, uh, we managed to take some time uh, from our duties, if you can call it that, of trying to understand democracy, mm -hmm. to uh, seek uh, to travel into the, the wilds of Michigan. And what did you see there? We saw an, en an enormous uh, experience, uh, uh, something that filled us with awe, the, the sublime forest, untouched, as I said, uh, by settlers. We've, we finally found Indians that uh, were noble and generous uh, and kind, unlike the Indians that we had seen who had already been spoiled by contact with the Europeans. And we found a, a kind of freedom of life that's very difficult to explain. Well, that, that was um, an Indian nation that up until around the time you got there had not had any contact with Europeans or with uh, white people. Is that right? A very little contact. Uh, they, they did have some contact, particularly with traders, and many of those were French. But I saw that the French got along with the Indians much better than the uh, English did. Uh, did. After my experience there, I wrote in my journal that the English were a cold, selfish race, uh, unlike the French, who seemed to uh, uh, be more willing to trade and to experience life with the Indians. Did you have an, observe, an opportunity to observe and comment on how the contact 
of uh, the that the native peoples, the indigenous peoples, had with the Europeans affected the indigenous peoples. Oh, I had many opportunities. Perhaps the most uh, striking one for me occurred in the city of Buffalo. Uh, we happened to be in Buffalo just at the time that the Indians from the surrounding area came in to receive their allotment from the government. Their allotment was a payment that they received uh, each year as a result of signing a treaty uh, with the government. And they would come into town and receive their allotment and then be preyed upon by uh, all kinds of uh, traders uh, and saloon keepers. And so by the time that the day was nearly over, many of the Indians were very drunk. And one that evening, as we were walking along the road, we saw a, a drunken Indian uh, looking in terrible shape by the side of the road. And his fellow Indians walked past him laughing and, and seeming to pay no mind. Finally, we went to a tavern and uh, said to them that uh, there is this man by the side of the road who needs uh, help, and we would gladly pay for someone to help him and to uh, put him up for the night in the tavern if someone would uh, go and get him. And the men uh, in the tavern all looked at each other uh, we had identified him as an Indian, and, and you could see there was a complete lack of caring in their minds. It was as if they said to each other, but what is worth the, the life of an Indian? Hmm. Uh, they treated the Indians as uh, far, far inferior to them, and it seemed that they only waited for the day that the Indians would succumb to a disease or to alcoholism or, or something of that sort and be gone. Well, I'd like to ask a whole lot of questions, uh, but we're, we're about to run out of time, so, so let me run a couple by you and see where they may go. One is um, when the native peoples were given money, they were being presented with a new economic system of, of abstract tokens that uh, were called dollars then, as opposed to uh, the furs and uh, uh, the tokens that they used. Did you see an effect on, uh, or were you able to observe an effect? I did not see so much an effect upon the Indians themselves as I did on the whites around the Indians. They were uh, inc extremely eager to dupe the Indians into giving up their money for something of far lesser value. And I felt that the Indians were constantly uh, being preyed upon by the greedy nature of the whites. Indeed, Beaumont and I as well, when uh, it was seen that we were foreigners, or were constantly on our guards uh, to uh, avoid receiving the same treatment. Hmm. In your travels in America in 1831 and 1832, did, did you uh, find any particular glue that held the society together? Yes, very interestingly, Monsieur Vogel, and in fact, when you mentioned that we landed in Newport, Rhode Island, the first thing that we saw was this tiny little village, uh, which had one store where people could purchase provisions and a saloon and a tavern and a place where the sailors could uh, buy their goods. Uh, it seemed like one store for each of these. This tiny village had four or five banks, and we were astonished. This, this commentary on the number of buildings uh, convinced us that what had been told to us on the boat was true, that 
you Americans were a terribly commercial people. The glue that holds people together in America seems to be the opportunity to make money and to get rich. And so Europeans who in Europe might have been at war with each other, fighting in different uh, lands, uh, coming to America suddenly grasp hands uh, in the common endeavor, the belief that they too can get rich, and many of their problems seem muted as a result. That is not to say that I believe that this wild pursuit of money is entirely good for Americans, but it certainly reduces many other problems that would have existed elsewhere. Mm, very interesting. Alexei de Tocqueville, I want to thank you very much for joining us here on Radio Curious. But before we go, I'd like to ask you the question that I ask all of my guests at the close of an interview. And that is, could you please tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Each day I read passages from my three favorite authors that I find are, are very valuable to me. And those are Blaise Pascal who speaks to me of the concerns of the faith and doubt that are so much a part of my modern society and indeed my own life. Um, and then uh, uh, the Baron de Montesquieu, who uh, in his book, The Spirit of the Laws particularly, uh, speaks about the importance of seeking to understand another society, not just in terms of its its government, its laws, but of the entire society, the spirit behind the laws. And that's very helpful for me in understanding uh, America. And then the third author that I read on a daily basis is uh, Rousseau, whose uh, concern, again, is one of this, this growing democratic society and what its impact means for all of us. Well, Alexis de Tocqueville, thank you very much for joining us here on Radio Curious. Merci, Monsieur Vogel. And Dick Johnson, I'd like to welcome you to Radio Curious. Well, hello, Barry. Um, you are a professor of history at the Claremont Colleges? Uh, at California State Polytechnic University in Pomona. Aha. Uh -huh. And um, your specialty is in? 19th century American history. Uh, the Age of Jackson is the course that I have taught the most and the longest, and that is the period that Tocqueville comes to America. And how is it that you uh, move to uh, adopt the persona of Alexei de Tocqueville? I was very fortunate. I happened to receive a phone call in the night uh, from the Inland Empire Educational Foundation. They were creating a series of Chautauqua figures and had already determined that they wanted to focus on the theme of democracy in America and center it around the views of Alexis de Tocqueville. And uh, they asked me if I would think of uh, auditioning for the part, uh, writing an essay about Tocqueville and about democracy, and mm -hmm. uh, doing a video audition. And uh, I was delighted with the opportunity because I've always uh, felt that Tocqueville was a very impressive uh, person and one that I could learn a great deal from. Analyzing, um, as the scholar that you are, his work, uh, Democracy in America, that many people read in American history classes, um, what influence do you think his interpretation of American society in the early 19th century had on our view of history? Let me repeat that. What influence did his view of America have on our view of history? Yes. I'm not sure I understand your well, question. Well, in, in other sorry. words, he, he went home after being here for less than a year and uh, wrote his two volumes on uh, 
what he believed was democracy in America. And now a certain amount of weight is given to that by historians such as yourself when uh, you teach uh, Jackson, the Jacksonian era and, and American history. Is, is this a valid interpretation? I understand now. Tocqueville's Democracy in America says many things about American society, and, and many of them are uh, accurate to the extent that uh, when we read this book, we continue to see ourselves, and we say, aha, oh, I never looked at it that way. Well, that's right. Uh, so there are many reasons why uh, Tocqueville is correct. But some historians, in particular Edward Pesson, have argued that uh, the, the basic thesis of Tocqueville's, uh, that there is a growing equality of conditions, uh, in America especially, is inaccurate, and that we need to revise that. Uh, Pesson produces statistics that indicate that in America there was in a growing inequality of conditions, that the gap between rich and poor was becoming greater. And I think we, in that light, we have to recognize that Tocqueville was coming from an aristocratic society or formerly aristocratic society. From his perspective, he saw only middle classes, but anyone who lived in America at that time would recognize that uh, there were other changes going on that he was not so sensitive to, and that inequality ought to be addressed as much as the issue of equality. When you say he came from uh, an aristocratic class, how would you define that term, aristocratic? The aristocracy in France, uh, under feudalism, had been the primary class of power. They believed in honor as a motivating force. They believed that their goal was to be men of leisure who had the time to look at the problems of society, and that it was their obligation to deal with those problems in a way that would be suitable or helpful to other members of the society. So they, they saw themselves as people with a responsibility for the welfare of the rest of society. Did, but, did, well, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Did that presume a certain intellectual capacity uh, to be inherent in the aristocratic class? That presumes an intellectual capacity not uh, necessarily better than other classes, but one that has the opportunity and the time for training and for reflection that other classes would not have. So it's a question of education, of leisure, and of dealing with the right kinds of questions. Partially because they had uh, their basic work uh, and their basic needs met for them by the labor of others? Yes, uh, certainly that part is true. But then that, uh, under, under feudalism, that put obligations upon the aristocracy itself to protect those who uh, worked for them and to uh, rule in their interests. Well, Dick, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And again, before we close, I'd like to ask you the question I ask all of my guests, and that is, could you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Can I take a cheap shot and ask everyone to read Democracy in America? That uh, certainly is a, a book well worth uh, looking at. And if you want a an up-to-date uh, attempt to review the issues. I think Robert Bella's book, Habits of the Heart, that looks at communities in America today, uh, also provides a very interesting set of insights. 
Well, thank you very much for being with us, and we'll look forward to uh, seeing you and the others in person under the big tent in Todd Grove Park uh, a week from tonight, July. Well, let me say we're looking forward to being with you as well. We're very excited about coming to you, Kaya. Well, thanks for joining us, Dick. Thank you, Barry. Goodbye. In this Chautauqua-style interview, we visit with Alexi de Tocqueville through the person of Chautauqua scholar Dick Johnson. The books that he recommends are Habits of the Heart by Robert N. Bella and, of course, Democracy in America by Alexi de Tocqueville. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org. And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707 621 5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.